As of just a few weeks ago, for the first time in nearly 50 years, you cannot buy a ticket on a U.S. airline to fly on a 747. I don't know if how many of you knew that. Delta 9771 flew from Atlanta about three and a half hours, touched down in a little airport, if you want to call it that, out in the desert of Arizona, a boneyard is what that's called for um, aircraft jetliners that are to be cannibalized and stored away. The queen of the skies has been retired. You Again, you can no longer buy a ticket to, to fly as a passenger on a U.S. airline to fly on a 747 jumbo jet. It's the end of an era. It's the end of an era. In its day, uh, the 747 was an engineering marvel. Was uh, something that was uh, brilliantly constructed, put together. Its maiden flight was just a, a year, I think, before we landed on the moon. Um, served so well to shorten the distance, to shorten the distance, as, as so many technological innovations through the years are intended to do. When you think about what was the first oar for, right? Or the first sail, or the rails or a fixed wing. All those things and so many other things were, were technical innovations meant to, to shorten the distance between beloved people and long-for places. But there is a distance that we need to consider here this morning that no technical innovation, it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how creative, it doesn't matter how brilliant, it doesn't matter how insightful, there is a distance that we need to consider that no technical innovation is ever going to overcome, and that is the distance between us and God. And the question is worth asking. I don't know how often we ask it, but it is worth asking. Can that distance actually, is there a distance? Can it be overcome? If so, how? Is it possible, can I put it this way, for the creature to touch his or her creator. Is that possible? Can we speak in those ways? And if so, how can it be? Matthew 14. Matthew who? That's what I was thinking a few days ago. It's been so long since we've been in this series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been something like six months, I think, going all the way back uh, past Christmas and to that great series we were in, gospel-driven outreach, but now we're going back to where we were in the series in Matthew's gospel. We're in Matthew 14, at the very end of Matthew chapter 14. So turn there if you would. Uh, that's the first gospel that we have, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, after Malachi, which we'll be studying in a couple weeks. Um, but this is Matthew, Matthew ch chapter 14, Verses 34 to 36. Short text. Short text, uh, but quite profound in its implications. Hear now the word of God. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. well. Can we pray for a moment? Lord, as we have been 
reading here this morning already and singing together already this morning and praying, coming before the, the throne of grace. Some here are feel as though we're, we're doing okay and, and some of us are bleeding out. Some of us are, are, if we ask, say, hey, what are you thankful for? We, we are quick and ready to come up with a, a good, thoughtful, insightful list. And others of us would stumble to come up with just a, a few short lists of surfacey things. And, and, and then, of course, between those poles, there's just a, a, a lot of, of variance therein. Um, some of us are keenly aware of your work in our lives right now, and, and some of us have just kind of shut down or shut it out. Some of us are ready to be here this morning and to engage with a text like this, prepared, and some of us are just barely here. We ask that you would meet every one of us in, in those places in the only way that, that, well, really only that you can. You who knows the thoughts and knows our hearts and beyond just the knowledge has the ability like the most skillful of surgeons to, to move in, move in and do, say, work as must be done. We thank you that when we open up the pages of Holy Scripture, this is not just a, another bestseller. This is not just something that is an interesting read, but this is the living word of the living God. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work within our poor hearts even now. Pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as I alluded to a moment ago, it's been a long time since we've been in this series in the Gospel of Matthew, so I really do feel like it's appropriate to just kind of get our bearings here for a minute. Let's, let's get straight as to how we got to where we are, okay? So Matthew's Gospel begins with Jesus' arrival on the scene in history, coming into time and space. John the Baptist then comes on the scene, preparing the way, preparing the people for the arrival of the Messianic King and the coming of the kingdom. Jesus arrives on the scene as well, advancing that kingdom, declaring its news, declaring the message of the kingdom, and with not just his words, but his works, his miracles, demonstrating that in fact in him the kingdom has come and he is in fact this long-awaited king. He sends forth his disciples as his heralds, as his royal emissaries out into the countryside. That, along with some other things, of course, his words and his works, provokes more and more opposition. In response to that opposition, Jesus then proclaims and explains the mysteries of the kingdom in the form of these parables, these beautiful, provocative stories that he Tells. And then that brings us to Matthew 14. You may be wondering, how, how did it take you so long to cover the, just the, and you just summed it up in two minutes? Well, that's another story. But, um, okay, so here we are in Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, Jesus reveals himself in the course of the feeding of the 5,000. And that's earlier in Matthew 14. He reveals himself in the course of the feeding of the 5,000 to actually be the God of the Exodus. 
the provider of his people in the wilderness. That's what, who he's revealing himself to be in the feeding of the 5,000. And then the sequel to that, in his walking on the water, he reveals himself to be not just the provider of his people, not just the, uh, the God of the Exodus, but the God of the storm. And not just the protector, of, not just the provider of his people, but the protector of his people. Which then brings us to this climax in the verses just before uh, what I read just a moment ago. They're in verses uh, 32, 33. And what they, that is uh, Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, that's the disciples now, worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So that's where we are. All right? That's where we last landed. Last time we were in this, this series, the disciples, realizing something of that. Announcing that, confessing that, professing that. Okay, so now we're in our text, the text before us here this morning. They've landed on the shore of Gennesaret. Gennesaret is there on the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little village there some miles south of Jesus' adopted hometown of Capernaum. And clearly what we see, it's, it comes out explicitly and implicitly here, Jesus' fame and reputation has spread through this region, and the crowds yet once again crowd. The crowds do. They crowd around him. They come around him. And some of them are so desperate, in fact, to come into a contact with him, a healing contact with him, that they're, they're so desperate, they long just to touch the fringe, not, not him, but the fringe of the robe that he is wearing. That's how desperate some of these people are. Maybe some of us can identify with something of that here this morning. I've gotten to think, thinking about this, just this passage, just wrestling with that, this short text here this, this morning over the last several days, and I cannot get out of my mind this idea, this concept, the wonder of touching God. The wonder of touching God. Now by that, I don't mean for a moment that the people there on the scene that day understood really who this was. They didn't. They really couldn't have. But we can. We can. We have the benefit of hindsight and history. And because of that, we can look back and we can have some understanding, some better understanding of who this is and why he's there, and why that's important, and what's transpiring, and whose presence, whether they knew it or not, we know now they were standing in. And who they longed actually to touch, whether, again, they understood it or not. This is such a simple thing to say, but the implications of it, the significance of it, is so profound. It's like the tectonic plates are just shaking and moving and the orbits of the heavens are shifting when you consider the significance of this simple statement god in christ can be touched god in christ can be touched and we need to think through the implications of those things the significance of those things let them settle in and live out of them 
Let the significance of those, that, that reality, that statement, that, that statement settle in and live out of them. Now, what would the significance of those things be? How would we even begin to talk about that? I, I, I'll fully confess right at the outset here that there are, I'm sure, many more ways that I have laid, that they could, be, they could be laid out than I have done so here in your outline. Uh, and, and certainly many more ways, descriptors, that we could put on the, on the labels. But we're going to go with this, this simple two-pointer. The physical implications and the relational implications. Okay, One is, I'll admit, a little more heady, and a little bit, one, the other has a little bit more to do with the heart. We're going to start with the head. Okay, A little bit more intellectual before we start moving into... Uh, how this touches in, in a deeper, deeper way. So first, the, the physical implications of the reality that God in Christ can be touched. Let's, let's talk for a moment, think for a moment about the very, just the notion of that state, the very idea, the, just the bare concept that God can be touched. What does it mean to touch? Touch implies mutual contact. One party, at least one party, moving towards the other. And there's this contact between the two, which demands, uh, that, that connection demands an intersection of some kind. They have to be, for that contact to be real, they have to somehow be on the same plane, on the same level. Now think about that for a minute. For God... For us to touch God, somehow he has to come onto our level. And the Bible is very clear that does not come about by our rising to him. That only comes by his sinking to ours. And that's what we see with Jesus. God, if you will, sinking to our level, which is a profound thing. And at the very least, ought to stir and provoke wonder in our hearts. It's what Dorothy Sayers is getting at in that quote that I read earlier. Oh my goodness, if, if this doesn't excite you, if you find this to be boring, then what on earth will stir you? The fact that God can be touched coming onto our level. Well, that's the notion. That's just the kind of touching, just barely getting touching on the touching. Now the scandal of it, though. The scandal of it. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans in, in their day would have found this whole idea, this whole concept to be morally reprehensible. Just just, just ridiculous, completely objectionable, because you, when you consider the, the great pantheon of the myths of their gods, who were of such lower, you know, honestly, if you remember back to, you know, in your grade school, reading all those stories and those myths, these were more, they were just such a less, lesser character, actually, than the people who wrote about them in many cases, right? Those old gods and those old goddesses and the things that they would do and, and, and such. And it's, by the time you get to this point in history, so many were just rejecting all of that, saying, that's ridiculous, that can't be. But then they're hearing the early church, the Christians, speaking of a God coming and taking on flesh and that it can't disassociate the one from the other and they just can't be true. This can't be true. This is ludicrous. This is ludicrous, just conceptually rejected. Then the Jews, that's the Greek and Roman mind, the, Jew, the Jewish mind would have found this not just morally objectionable, but theologically reprehensible. It can't be. It can't 
be that the God of the burning bush would walk among us? That can't be. So this is the scandal. This is the scandal of the idea of touching God, of a touchable God, which then takes us to origins. And some of you have heard me ask questions like this and trying to get us to, to think in these ways before. It begs the question, if this isn't true, where did it come from? Given the scandal that it would have represented to anyone in, in that day, Jew or Gentile, we have to wrestle with the question, where did it come from if it's not true, given how scandalous that this is and what was for the people at the time? It can't be just rejected out of hand. We have to give it a hearing. It ought to provoke wonder, and we ought to give it a hearing. Okay, so that's the notion of this. That's the scandal of this. Lastly, the third of the three points here, the sub-points here, is the ethics the ethics of a, the idea, the, the, of the notion of a touchable God. And what I mean by that is this. If God and Christ can be touched, you know what that means? It means matter matters. Matter, that, matters. Life in this world means something. It counts or something. Some of you may know that the, the Eastern religions would say that the material, the physical, is an illusion. And, and, and really salvation is, is more to be found in escaping from that, in realizing that actually it doesn't have distinction. It's all part of a grand oneness. And, and going back to the, to the Greek and Roman ideas of the time back in the first century, they would have said the material, the physical, is, is bad. It's evil. The gods would never have, if I can, you know, use this language, this imagery, would never have gotten their fingernails dirty with the mud and clay of the physical. So salvation was to be found in, in escaping from that and being free from the material and the physical. In fact, some religious folks and sadly many church folks seem to think the same thing as the first century Greeks and Romans, that really salvation is to be found by escaping the things of this earth and rising to the kingdom above. But the gospel makes clear that that's not it at all. Salvation is the kingdom, not escaping from this world and going to the kingdom, but the kingdom coming into this world. That is the good news of the Christian gospel. Not an escaping of anything but rather the kingdom entering into everything. Point being that matter matters, which then forms the basis for our ethical stances. Just stay with me now. I know, this is kind of heady. But that forms the, 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 the basis, the foundation, the, the ground in which we can stand for our ethical stances because things matter, they count. So it's why, as Christians, we can make a more solid case than anyone else for a good, balanced approach to care for the environment. Why we can address issues of poverty in a more holistic way than anyone else, because matter matters in the things of this world, and this life matter. They count for something. That, that we can address racism in, in any form, or go full on into the teeth and attack the horrors of the slave trade today. 
Because matter matters. The things of this world count for something, and we see something of that here in Matthew 14, the very idea that we can touch God means the things of this world matter. It counts for something. Name it may be familiar to some of you. William Wilberforce, 19th century British abolitionist. The turning point in his life, the, the, the time in his life when he gave himself to the cause that he gave himself for the remaining decades that he was on this earth can be traced to a diary entry in October 1787. And this is what Wilberforce wrote. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, by manners, I need to quickly explain that because now you're thinking table etiquette and, and Emily Post and stuff like that. That is not in any way what Wilberforce meant in the late 1700s. By the reformation of manners, what he is talking about in that context is the reformation of moral and social behavior in the culture. And in that sense, the suppression of the slave trade, and then getting to the roots of that, the reformation of manners, all of that is tied to, is rooted to, the fact that reality that this world counts, the things of this world count, that matter matters, that matter matters. Um, it, it, it impels, it insists on a certain way on a certain path, on a certain life. And we need to be consistent here. Consistent in the stances that we take and how and why we take them and the direction in which we take them. And I want to speak to sexual ethics now at this point. Speaking in particular, just I'll take two, two things. The hookup culture and the debates today about gender identity. We need to be consistent here and call people around us to be consistent here. We can't say that the physical matters, that matter matters and significant is significant, that this, things of this world count in all these other arenas, and then over here say it doesn't. We need to be consistent. We need to be consistent in our thinking. And again, why? At the baseline, foundationally, because God in Christ can be touched. God in Christ can be touched. We need to let the implications of that settle in and live out of them. Okay, that's the physical arena, umbrella. That's the first point. And I warned you when I started, that's the heady part. Okay, and that's the thing that's just going to, you know, churns up our thinking and need to think about it some more in the implications, but I need to push on. From the headier stuff, the physical implications to what I'll call the relational implications. And this is where we move from the head to the heart. We move from the head to the heart. Let's, let's think in terms of the, the separation. The, because we need to have in mind the, the wonder and the shock, part of the scandal, the wonder and the shock of being able to touch God. We don't, can't appreciate that until we understand the separation. The separation that is there. The Old Testament and the rules and regulations that were in place in the Mosaic Law, God made it very clear from early on that there were certain objects that were to be regarded as holy and others that were unholy, certain ones that were to be regarded as clean and others that were unclean. And therein there were laws about things that you could and could not 
touch or come into contact with or associate with in any way at all. And, and we see that in a lot of different ways in, in the ceremonial laws and some other things, um, some of the cultic practices and festivals and all such. But I'm just going to give you one example that I think really in a dramatic way pictures this for us. If you're going to keep your thumb there in uh, Matthew 14, go with me to Exodus. This is the second book of the Bible. The Old Testament, after Genesis, you hit Exodus. And just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, that's in Exodus 20, after the Passover, we read of here at the, the base of Mount Sinai, this communication between, taking place between God and Moses and this message that Moses is to relay to the people because of what's about to happen. A whole lot of shaking is going to go on. That's what's going to happen. Matthew, excuse me, uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 10. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, and that's with an arrow, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. All right, I'll stop there. The idea being that God is that holy. Not to be trifled with. God is that holy. He is that other. He is that separate. He is that pure. And we are not. Ours is a sinful condition. Ours is a broken, a deep crookedness within, a bentness, a stubborn, uh, steadfast rebelling against and turning from Him. That's the separation. That's the wall. That's the chasm. That all those, all those rules and those regulations were meant to impress upon the, the, the people. What will overcome that? Such a barrier. Such a separation between such a, a righteous, holy God and such a screwed up people like us. The, the, the only thing that can overcome a great separation is a greater restoration. And that's what we see with the cross. That's exactly what we see with the cross. What will it take? How far will God's love and determination go? As far and as long as it takes. All the way to laying it all down on Jesus on the cross. That's what it takes. That's what demand, was demanded. And the effect of that, the aftershocks of that, stay in uh, Matthew 14. Let's go to the, almost to the end of Matthew's Gospel. You see something of this pictured for us in a, in a physical, wondrous way. Matthew 27. 28 is the end of the, the book, but 27 is where I want to take you. 
Matthew 27, verse 51. Matthew 27, verse 51. Listen, this is right after Jesus breathes his last. This is the next thing that Matthew, the, the gospel writer, records for us. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This curtain, this curtain was made up of 72 uh, interwoven, intertwined plates made up of 24 threads each. Uh, that curtain was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, separating the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, into which no one could go. It was the barrier. It was the barrier. Only one person, the high priest, was ever allowed to go back there, and that was on the Day of Atonement. One day a year, on the Day of Atonement. So, what would it mean for that curtain, as we read there in Matthew 27, what would it mean for that curtain to be rent asunder, for it to be torn by a hand that no eye can see? It means that the separation is undone. The wall has been breached. That what has happened because of Jesus' full fi finished work in the spiritual realm erupts, overflows into the physical realm with the tearing of this curtain. It's that powerful. It's that real. It can't be contained. And the curtain itself is torn as a consequence of this. My friends, that is the that's the implication of Jesus' work. This is how, this is how we can touch God in Christ because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. We can have, we can be in relationship, we can touch God Himself, which I will just push this a little further, tells us something. His great work of restoration, overcoming the great separation, tells us something about His great affection for us. Two huge truths here. One I've already mentioned. The second is a consequence of it, or a sequel to it. So the first is, God in Christ can be touched. The corollary to that can only be that He wants us to touch Him. It has to be. If God in Christ can be touched, it has to mean He wants us to touch Him. Not because of some need within Him. Not because of some ache, some hole, He's lonely. It's not because of any need in Him, it's because of a need in us. It's not for His sake, it's for our sake. And He sees that and moves towards us in Christ that we could touch the living God. These are the relational implications of this passage, this summary here of what's taking place that day uh, on the shore there at Gennesaret. I want to re read you a, a, a passage here from C.S. Lewis. I mentioned him earlier in connection with... Um, a quote we started with. 
at the beginning of, of the, the service. Um, but this is a quote from Lewis's in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. I'll just read this to you. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, dear, Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last... The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying, between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child. That's a picture of the relational implications of Matthew 14. We can touch, in Christ, we can touch the living God. The restoration and His affection. Now here's a question. What would it look like if you and I believed that? You know, I'm implying that we don't. What would it look like if we really let that land on us in a deep, transformative way? What if the grandeur of that was just to take our hearts, take control, I say the grander. What I mean by that is, is, is this. The gospel is very plain. Now, I know this is offensive, but the gospel is very plain. There is an exclusivity in terms of a truth claim. That it is only in Christ that we can know the living God. Only, only. You see the exclusiveness. Only in Christ that we can know the living God. So that's the exclusivity. But with that, there is an vast inclusivity. Because any, any who put their hope and trust in Christ can be saved. Did you know, back to Matthew 14, did you notice who was made well that day? All who were sick. All who were sick. Not all who came and thought they had their act together. All, not all who thought that they'd done enough and knew enough and were squared away enough. It was all the sick. That is the grandeur of what we're talking about here. The reach of the gospel. All who were sick. And in fact, I've struggled with another word for this, but I'm going to say slightness, the slightness of this, the beautiful, sweet slightness of this. Did, did you notice what it took for them to be healed, not to touch. Not even him. 
and not even his robe, but the fringe of his robe. And that's all it took. That's, that's all it, it took. All it took was just, just to believe. And, and by that, what I mean is this, and I think the text is pointing us in this way. We're not talking about a doubtless faith, which is impossible in this life. We're not talking about a faith that knows no doubts. We're not talking about a faith that has to have everything figured out, which will never happen. We're, talk, and we're, we're talking about a faith that, that can be as weak as weak can be, but its object is as strong as strength can be. The place is the point. The place of our faith is the issue. Who it's in. Not how strong it is. May it be in Jesus May it be the fringe of His robe that we reach towards and touch. That's the relational implication here. God and Christ can be touched. May we let these implications settle in on us and live out of them. I want to end with this. Um, be remiss if I didn't say something here. And that, that is, what comes? What comes as a consequence? Of, of touching him, of reaching out towards him, turning to him. Well, it's so obvious, so I'll say it again. It is there in verse 36, and as many as touched it, the, the fringe of his garment, as many as touched it were made well. Could be uh, translated, were healed, were saved, actually, another way to translate, were rescued. Uh, escaped, were brought safely through. The word has that many connotations. It has that many nuances depending on the context. It's speaking of a healing that goes as wide as it takes. That, that, that begins now and comes to full completion later. But surely, as far as the curse is found, that's the sort of healing that's being... That's the, healing that comes from touching Christ. I mentioned one of the inklings already. You know, an inkling? What's that? Lewis. C.S. Lewis and the, this group of other writers that he was a part of, they'd get together in a pub there uh, in England. And, and another name maybe you've heard, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, famous, of course, for the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, the third part of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. There's this beautiful scene there after the battle. Pelennor fields. And the wounded have been taken back into the city and they're being tended to by nurses and such there within the, the halls, but many of them are not getting better. In fact, some of them are just getting worse, no matter how hard they try to attend to their wounds. And then one of the nurses remembers this ancient old legend. It goes like this. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. It's at that point that Aragorn, Strider, the mysterious ranger, great warrior, proceeds to take some leaves and crush them 
and put them in a bowl of warm water. And as he proceeds to, to do that and the scent of those herbs that are stirred um, stirs in the nostrils of those in, there in the halls that are laid low and as Aragorn makes his way through there and touches them, kisses them, and they're healed and the rumors begin to spread. The king has come. Friends, the rumors are true. The king has come with healing in his hands. The king has come. The rumors are true. All the old stories, the grand old stories that speak of a, a, a long-lost king coming and the slaying of a dragon and his healing kiss awakening us from our sleep of death and the rescue from the imprisoned tower fortress and returning us to home and making all things right. You know why those stories resonate so deeply? Because they're true. They're traced back to the one true story. That there was a time when we had it all and then we lost it all. But in Jesus, we gain it all. The one true story. In, with that king... We can touch God because He is God. God in the flesh. Oh, that we would let that land on us and live out of it. Let's pray together. Jesus, healing King. This is a simple but profound reality to speak of touching God. It sounds like a children's story. It sounds like a myth. It sounds crazy. But in you, it's real. We pray that you'd help us not take that for granted, not just to have an of course to us when we think about this, but rather be overwhelmed with wonder and let it move into the crevices of our souls. Oh, put our, help us to put ourselves there that day. To feel those fringes in our own fingers. And in every day flowing from this day, think back to the wonder of what it was like to touch you and know that you are with us still. In your name we pray.